Hello, Ryan. Episode 16. This is episode 16 already? 16, man. Yeah. We're doing it? I mean, you were only here for four of them, but uh, the other 12 were great. Damn it, I was. <laughs> I didn't even know that. <laughs> uh, how are you? You just uh, you just worked 100 hours. Yeah, over 100 hours. It was uh, required <laughs> for me to be there. <laughs> it was a requirement. Uh, uh, <laughs> Couldn't get out uh, of there. Yeah, how uh, anything intense happened? Um, you know, we had a, a good mix of everything, I would say. Um, but I will say to anybody who's listening, we did actually make a real difference in a few people's lives. So I will say that there was some success to be said about our, uh, my time at work, you know, it's always good. Cause I would say some days, you know, we help people and we are there for them, but I don't know if I really yeah. feel like we make a true difference, you know, in the nine one one sense of things, but I would say there's a few there. For those of you who don't know, Ryan is a male stripper. Oh, um, I'm just finding this out as well. <laughs> so <right>. when he, <laughs> so most days he's just you know, yeah, rubbing it in people's faces. But there are days you do make a difference. There are days I definitely do make a difference. Yeah, I would say I bring happiness to people's lives. <laughs> I know Ryan is a firefighter and medic. Are there any? Are there any questions? People, ooh, are there any like off limit questions? Like, obviously, there's HIPAA laws and you can't discuss sure. patients or cases. But are yeah. there any questions that you like? I have a friend who was an army ranger for eight years and he hates that people go, Oh, did you, did you kill anyone? Like, oh, are there any yeah. questions that you don't want to hear from people or things you don't want to talk about? Um, that's a good question. I'm sure I could think of some. Let me see. What? I what we typically get asked, I would say first would be like a lot of questions about like why a fire engine goes to people's houses when they call them one for like a medical problem. Okay. And uh, people usually ask uh, why so many people show up sometimes, you know, like I would say like people ask that sometimes when they call, you know, they'll be like, oh, I did, you brought the whole cavalry. You know, I'll be like, yep, yeah, that's you called 911. <laughs> we are all here. But uh, no, other than like specific questions about what happened to certain people, because I would never talk about any of that. Um, there's nothing yeah. really specific that would be off limits, I would say. I would just never talk specifically about a call that we had. Nothing makes you uncomfortable, though. No, I would say uh, some of the dumber questions i guess i would at that would be asked to me would be like have you ever seen a dead body or something yeah you know because i feel like that's a given you know <laughs> so in the last hundred plus hours at work did, did you see any dead bodies uh yes mm. that's an a firm a lot that sadly you know Sadly, I don't I don't want to be I don't want to joke about anything like that. You know, I mean, it's unfortunate, but yeah, you know, it's part of our job. Does it ever. Does it ever get easier? Is it is it hard? Is it something you're numb to? Like, what what's the what are the feelings with with experiencing that? Yeah, I, I would say in a sense you get numb to it, you know, unfortunately, I mean, you definitely feel the you feel for people and you know that it's a tragedy and it's always something that we talk about, but you know, it's a, at times it can be kind of a dark job. So you just kind of have to figure out a way to deal with it. And honestly, it kind of goes a little bit back to 
our conversation we had with Ben uh, Vernon on episode 15. If you guys haven't listened to it, it's awesome. And you know what he talks about, how all that stuff kind of builds up over time. I think it's important to be able to find a way to talk about it and deal with it in your own way. You definitely don't want to let it get to you too much because, you know, it can wear you down. Ben actually said something that I wanted to ask you about, and that was having to break bad news to someone's family. Yeah. It's a... Uh... It's definitely a tough situation. And I think we kind of talked about with uh, with Ben that, you know, we don't really get like official training on that. Uh, I got my training during my paramedic internship because that was the first time we really had to, I had to be in that role. So you just kind of learn an art into being compassionate, but straightforward, not giving people false hope and yeah. explaining exactly what's going on. You just have to be very factual about what's happening with someone. Yeah. Did is that something you had to do this week? Yes. <sighs> I'm sorry, yeah. man. Yeah, it sucks. But you know, it's the job I signed up for. You know, it's yeah. it's part of the job. And what balances it out, luckily for us, I think is there's a lot of, hey, we also saved this person or we helped this person in a certain way that made a difference in their life. So, and we make a lot of people happy too. You know, we make kids happy by them seeing us and come visiting the fire station or, or hanging out on the fire engine or truck, or yeah. we, you know, help that old lady get up off the ground or we help her with medication she needs. I mean, we do things, we try to go above and beyond. I would say all first responders do, whether they're police, firefighters, one of the things that doesn't get talked about enough is how above and beyond they go to like the exact description of their job because True. we just want to do whatever we can to help citizens, you know? Yeah. And I know it sounds kind of cheesy, but it really is one of those things that separates you from being someone who just clocks into work and says, all I have to do is what my job description says, or can I go take that next step and just be a good person and see what these people need. You know, we've done multiple things to help people with their problems that aren't necessarily the job of the fire department, I would say. Yeah. That's really cool. I respect you for that. Oh, thank you, man. Thank you. Let's, uh, let's get into today's episode. Let's get into it. Let's do it. All right, Adam, today we have Dr. Howard Wazden. Yep, the Waz. The Waz. I wonder if anybody calls him the Waz. They do, but we're probably not allowed to. Yeah, I was going to say, they do probably call him the Waz. I don't remember what his nickname was in the teams. <laughs> but Dr. Howard Wazden is a former SEAL Team 6 uh, sniper. He graduated from Bud's Class 143. He became a top sniper with SEAL Team 6. Uh, his He was served in Mogadishu, um, Somalia. He was part of what is later known as Black Hawk Down. Uh, he also served in Desert Storm. And then after he left the military, he... Hold on. He was shot three times. He does. Yes, he was. He has a purple heart. Mm-hmm. And then he wrote a book. Yeah, then he wrote a book. His... Uh, yeah, so his books, for anybody that's curious, it's called Seal Team 6, Memoirs of an Elite Navy Sniper. I actually read that book myself about five or six years ago. It was a great book. 
fantastic. I highly recommend it. He also has a more of like a kid's version of that book. I don't know if that's fair to say, but he has a it's a young adult. Like a it's a young version. adult. Yeah. A young yeah. adult version that's better for a younger audience. It's not a coloring book. <laughs> it's not a coloring book. It's called I Am Seal Team. I am a SEAL Team Six Warrior. And uh, he also has another book called The Last Rescue, uh, How Faith and Love Saved a Navy SEAL Sniper. But yeah, after Howard got out of the military, he pursued a medical degree. He now is a chiropractor. He lives in Georgia or he did live in Georgia. I think at the time we talked to him, he was talking about Florida, Florida, right? Yeah. 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 (laughs) He was like, hey, guys, come visit me in Florida. But he's in Georgia. That's his trick. Yeah, (laughs) that's his trick to us. He's like, haha, gotcha. (laughs) <laughs> uh, we had a really good conversation with him though we talked about his childhood he had a, a pretty rough go uh, we talked about how that taught him some you know resilience which led to the rest of his career and future and we talked about how you don't have to you don't have to follow the circumstances that you're dealt you know you don't have to live that same way so I think there's a lot to learn from this episode, and I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. You've talked a lot about, you know, your life journey and how it kind of led you in some ways to join the military and and have that vigor, I guess, to to make something of yourself. And I was wondering if maybe you could get into uh, where you came from, where you're where you grew up and how your childhood kind of started out for you. Well, wow, that's a, that's a lot of stuff. Um, well, where yeah. I came from, um, for reading my book, you guys know, um, I'm adopted. I, um, sorry, I hear myself talking about here. Um, no I'm adopted. And I think that brings with it in itself. That brings a lot of challenges. Um, I'm, I'm assuming you guys are both uh, biological dads or, or whatever. When uh, you take someone else's child to raise, I think that's a lot harder. So I'm not going to be too hard on the man who eventually adopted me. But as you know, from reading the book, Ryan, uh, that mm-hmm. was it was it was not a not a real. I didn't have a good childhood. The man who adopted me was um, old school, died in the wool, southern boy who was brought up by sparing the rod, sparing or spare the rod, spoil the child type mentality, which meant that um, a child didn't do something the way that they were supposed to, then they got beat by that rod. Um, mm. So I, I was brought up that way. Uh, very, very rough childhood, very um, labor intensive childhood. I um, Children today, if um, by, by contrast, children today don't have to work the way that I were hip children back then, most of them didn't have to work the way I did. Uh, I was 12 years old working in the, in, in a field, you know, um, people talk today about, uh, being raised hard or being, uh, mistreated and, you know, children being mistreated today means that somebody says something to hurt their feelings. Yeah. Back then I was, um, I was working in a watermelon patch when I was 12 years old, loading field trucks, you know, breaking down truck tires, um, uh, Doing, doing all the things that uh, a typical field hand would do. Um, not to like make that sound like anybody should feel sorry for me. In a way, it, it I guess it may be tough. We've kind of talked about that. But um, 
I think uh, in, in some ways you got to find that middle ground, that balance between what the type of childhood I had and the really, really easy childhood that we're all trying to afford our children today, me included. Right. Uh, I never wanted my child or my grandchildren now to um, to work as hard as I did or to definitely be treated the way that I was treated. But um, there, you got to find that middle ground between total pampering and providing safe spaces and, oh, my God, um, everybody else is the bad guy and my child's the perfect human being um, and, uh, you know, and, and being raised the way I was. But um, I, I guess what changed it for me and, and the key point in, in my childhood was when I found out that you don't have to <clears throat> exist the way you were raised. Um, and that, that would be mm-hmm. a long conversation, but basically good or bad in your childhood, there comes a time when you have to make decisions on your own. And a lot of those decisions are based on the people around you. Um, I point out in my book about uh, Colonel John F. Parker, who was my uh, junior ROTC commandant. Um, my home life was so bad and I, I was treated so poorly and had literally had the life beaten out of me on, on occasions that um, I was at a point in the ninth grade of high school where I had literally thought that, you know what, dying doesn't really sound like a bad idea. Now, mm-hmm. that, that's a terrible thing to think. And back in the days when I was growing up, guys, in South Georgia, people didn't talk about what went on in a, in a child's house or household or what went on in a child's life or or whatever, everybody was given a, a free hand to raise their children and nobody asked questions. But I'd literally gotten to the point where I thought, hey, you know, maybe uh, living ain't so great. Maybe there's something, you know, to this whole thing about not even living at all. But Colonel Parker um, pulled me aside one day and I was in junior ROTC, like I said, and he said, you know what? I see a lot of potential in you. I see... Uh, I see a young man who anytime I give you a chore, you're driven. Anytime I give you a task, you exceed. Anytime I put you in charge of a small group of cadets, you you excel. So if you think about that for a minute, um, I had been raised to do exactly what I was told. I've been raised to right. excel and work hard. So there's that parallel, even though it's kind of deviant uh, or, you know, kind of like not the way you're supposed to raise a leader. But anyway, he pulled me aside and told me that. And um, from that point forward, I started thinking about, well, you know, maybe there's something really good that I could take from this hard discipline or whatever. Um, I remember one day in particular, guys, he uh, he told me how to tie a tie, a necktie. Uh, the man who raised me had no idea how to tie a necktie. You know, he was just, you know, uh, a hardworking truck farmer, but um, uh, Colonel Parker showed me how to tie a tie, a uh, necktie. And I remember seeing so, being so proud that I could tie a necktie. That sounds like a small thing, but for a young man who's never had anybody show him any attention, um, take any time with him, um, try to cultivate anything good in him other than just direct hard labor, um, that, that meant a lot to me. and. That was basically the point where I was like, you know what, um, I'm going to survive this um, home life that I've got. 
I'm going to graduate high school and I'm going to do something with my life because there's something better out there. So yeah. for all your, all your podcast people just realize that you never know what that one little thing that you might do for someone else is. Even if it's something as simple as showing a young man how to tie a tie, how to, how to do a, a, a tie. Um, you never know what impact that's going to have. And I know in the world we live in today, everything's so hyperbolic, so politicized, so I don't know, left and right, liberal, yeah. conservative. Uh, we, I think we missed that. But I think in the overall scheme of things, we need to get back to what the little things are, like the little things like helping a young man, helping a young woman, helping a child, doing something positive in somebody else's life instead of saying, hey, you know, you don't think the way I do. So there must be something wrong with you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, I feel like we hear countless times about people who have, who have achieved great things have usually gone through struggle. So do you, do you think that going through some type of struggle, real struggle in your life is essential to becoming someone great? I don't know. I heard a story one time from this really wise, uh, Japanese man, um, who, uh, who became a mentor to me. And he said that the best swords are beaten and folded many times. So you can take a piece of steel and it could be good steel, but until it's had a little hammering or in this, in this case, adversity and um, beaten and folded many times, you may, uh, you may, you may not ever achieve what you could have achieved without that adversity. So, so I see where you're going with that, Ryan. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I've got to play both sides here. Yeah, I think that probably my rough childhood, and I've thought about it many times, spoken to hundreds of thousands of people and audiences about this. I think that my childhood probably did prepare me for SEAL Team 6 and, you know, success, um, being resilient, if you will. But uh, at the same time, I would never recommend that extreme type of – of uh, duress or mistreatment or I'll, I'll call it abuse. So, right. yeah, well, adversity can make you stronger, um, but, you know, there's there's different types of adversity. I mean, you can overcome things without having to have a really, really terrible childhood. But uh, and the general or my overall answer to your question would be, yes, uh, does the things that you have to overcome in your life make you a stronger person? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, they, they will. Uh, they, they make you a stronger person. Do I think, and I'll just go ahead and skip ahead here for you. Um, mm -hmm. do, do I think that we're doing a lot of our millennials, our younger people today, a disservice by trying to like make everything better for them or not to, uh, for example, do uh, we don't prepare our children for the road. We prepare the road for our children. That, that's not the way to go. Because right. eventually that kid's going to hit a bend in the road that Ryan or Adam didn't pre prepare him for. And then they're going to be like, oh, dang, dad, you know, where were you? You didn't have this just right for me. Yeah, you know, exactly. And, that's, and, that, and that's no way to that's no way to live life or prepare your children either. So, you know, there's, yeah. uh, there, there's that reality. When, when did you realize that your childhood wasn't normal? <laughs> oh, my God. Um Think back to the earliest memory that you have, Adam, as a child. Think back to the time and tell me what your earliest 
childhood thought is. As a doctor now, I know um, I know exactly uh, why they asked this question, but I'm going to do this to you. What is the earliest thing that you can remember? Most people, it'll be like a fishing trip uh, with your grandfather or father. It'll be like, I don't know, um, a boat ride or or their first oh, I, day I, of I, kindergarten. What, what I know is your mine, earliest it's, child? It's, uh, mine's pretty rough, actually. <laughs> okay, let me hear uh, it. My first memory is uh, being four or five years old and changing my younger sister's diaper because she pooped and my mom was at work and my biological father was at a bar. You know what? I like that story. You're a good man. My youngest memory is being snatched out of the top bunk of a bunk bed and a one piece um, pajama suit and being slapped in the mouth by a grown drunk man. That was the guy who would eventually man. be my stepfather. I remember sit, I remember standing there shaking um, and him smacking me in the mouth and me tasting the blood in my mouth and him yelling at me for whatever, wow. I had, whatever I had done that day. He was dating my 16, 17 year old mother or 17. So she had I me, mean, she was 16. So she'd probably been 20 then. And um, he, he had come in off the truck and was going to show me how to be a real man or was mad at me for whatever I'd done that day. So um to answer the question, that's when I realized it wasn't normal. I mean, at that point, you might not know what normal is, but you know damn sure that being pulled out of a bed and smacked around at that age. And yeah. then I got beaten worse because I, I urinated on myself. So mm. that, that's when I knew it wasn't normal. Wow. And, and that's who, like that's who say, ended up adopting you? Say again? That's who ended up adopting you? Yes. Yeah. About, see, wow. four, about four years later, ended up uh, adopting me. So, yeah. Wow. So, yeah. But so I mean, so you obviously at, at four when that happened, like you knew and felt that was terrible. But did you so as growing up, did you feel envious of, of your friends? Did you tell anyone that was happening at your house? Oh no, absolutely not. I um and, and that's the that's the other thing. Um, like I said, being raised in South Georgia at that time, you didn't tell anybody anything. Um, everything stayed in the house. There was no um, counselor at school to go talk to or whatever. And not that I probably would have because, you know, the way I was raised is, you know, what happens in the house stays in the house. But um, I, I remember yeah. one time when I was in eighth grade um, and I got beaten with a belt regularly. I'm talking about when I say regularly, once or twice a week uh, with a belt until I was probably in the 10th or 11th grade. And mm -hmm. I remember one time in eighth grade, I was playing JV uh, football. And I had taken a hit in the side and the coach, um, one of the uh, local coaches there, and Jessup brought me into his office to look at my hip to see how I was. Um, and he pulled down my pants and he saw the hell that was my low back, backside and the back of my legs, which was just like stripes of, um, you know, of a, of, a, of a leather belt and welts. And uh, he just I remember him just like uttering to himself, oh, my God pulling my pants back up and sending me back out and never saying a word. And right. guess what guys, I was happy wow. they didn't because if he'd said anything, probably anything, have been whipped worse. You better believe it. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's not like it is today. Yeah. Wow. And what is, what is your relationship like with, with that man now? See, he died. I think he died in 2007. So he's dead now. Oh, okay. And you guys want to know the funny thing is, uh, and, and thanks for that question, Adam. Um, thing is, I, I love the man. I, I loved him then. 
Um, you guys may not understand this, but that's the way he was raised. That's all he knew. That's all. I mean, that's the only way he knew to how to raise a child. I mean, his dad raised him the same way. Um, my grandmother, his mother, um, told us all stories about she would tell her husband to take the boys down to the, there was the river right down the, the road from where we all grew up. And we grew up right next to her. He would take the boys down to the river to spank them because she couldn't stand the sound of them being spanked and their and you know their subsequent cries. So he was raised that way, and by God, that's the way he was supposed to raise me. And yeah, I don't think he, you know, I don't think he did anything malicious or that's that's just all he knew. Yeah. So um, it might surprise you both to know, but yeah, you know, Leon Watson was his name, and you know, I loved him. I love him now. Um, and toward the later part of his life, just a few years before he died, I, I, um, my uh, brother-in-law told me they had a conversation with him one time and he had admitted to him that he was too hard on me and Becky, which was my younger sister that uh, he adopted. So the two of us that he adopted, he admitted that he was too hard on us. So I guess later in life, he realized that his, yeah. um, his actions were, were too harsh. Hmm. You, you never talked to him about it though? No, no, no. We never talked about that. I mean, uh, once you're grown and gone, um, you know, there comes a point to the, where there's what's, what's the point? There was one time, there was one time um, I came home and I was at SEAL Team 2 and I'd come home to Scriven and we were all sitting at the dinner table and we just finished um, eating dinner. And um, my younger sister had... Um, gotten in some trouble or whatever, but she was, she was grown. I think she was like 21, 22. She got in some trouble in the local community or whatever. And I'm like, Hey, you know, why don't I just bring her back up to Norfolk with me? She can, you know, live with me and my wife and um, we'll get her into um, school up there and kind of help her out, keep her out of this local trouble she's in or whatever. And he got real mad about that and um, stood up. And whereas before he would reach over and grab me or slap me or, whatever he would do. I mean, I mean, dang guys, I've been, I've been hit with two by fours by the man. Wow. Um, he uh, stood up from the table and I stood up. And at that point he realized that he didn't want to put his hands on me. And, and I'm so glad that didn't happen because at, at that point I was old enough, big enough, and to be honest, trained enough that I would have, it wouldn't have been good for him. Yeah, but that absolutely. didn't happen. And that was his point of realization that, hey, this is not my dog to kick anymore. So, but after that, we never had a crossword. We never, you know, came to any type of confrontation. And I, I, actually, Adam, I wish if he were alive today, I would love to have that conversation with him just from an educational standpoint so that he could realize that, hey, you know, this is, that, that wasn't the way to be, um, even though I think he finally realized that. But I think um, I'd love to have a conversation with him just for like closure for me to say, hey, yeah. you know, I know that was all you knew, but it was hell living under your roof. Yeah, it is. It is. That is so true that it comes down from your from your generations and your parents try, you know, do the best they can with what they are raised with and from what their parents, what they are raised with. So it is really incredible that that you were able to break that chain and break that that cycle. Yes. 
Yeah, and, and you know what? I've, I've I've been through a lot of counseling since then. After um, you guys all know I was shot during Mogadishu, mm-hmm. Somalia. Well, after losing my friends and in combat and being shot three times and almost losing a leg, uh, the funny thing, funny thing, haha, was I went to all my counseling <laughs> and um, yeah, sounds like a uh, sounds like a bad Tuesday for sure. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> then I went um, and after all my counseling, when I was working on my doctorate. Um, Come to find out, my, my PTSD wasn't Al Qaeda. It wasn't uh, you know um, Otto Osman. It wasn't being shot. wasn't losing friends. The PTSD that still haunted me the most was my childhood. So I, I just thought that was like you know, yeah, not not funny, but it, that that that's what bothered me the most. So I overcame all that um, just to find out that hey, what's really bothering you, and you know what was your childhood? So. I wonder if because of your childhood, you were able to block out some of what was what was happening when you were at war. And if that if that helped you stay focused, even. See, Adam, you, you might be a counselor because that's that was exactly <laughs> her words. Her words exactly were, were blocking. Um, yeah. Like even going through like buds and everything, like going through SEAL school um, stuff that I saw guys like quitting for, you know, we, we started with a class of 143 people. We graduated 14. And I remember looking at these wow. guys going, man, why, why are you, why are you quitting? Why are, you know, that's it. That's all it takes. But yeah. the, her words were like, Hey, after what you've been through, you were able to block that out. You know, I mean, laying in a surf zone, being cold. Hey, I've, I've laid on a bed and been beat for half an hour. Um, part of the time for not crying enough and part of the time for crying too much. And that's, that's the exact truth, not an exaggeration. Um, so I, I see all these guys just like quitting, but like, like you said, um, she said, I, I was blocking out, you know, that um, I don't recommend that type of extreme conditioning for our special forces guys, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, but, but, but blocking was exactly what uh, the term she used. It, it's incredible that um, going through those things, kind of got you predisposed to like meet that adversity later on in life because I find that it's easy to pick out people who haven't faced like failure. Maybe they've been given like, you know, the the cliche of everybody gets a trophy or they've they've moved forward in life and always had success because maybe they were helped along and stuff. And it seems like that's happening less and less now. Less and less people are being told that they're not good enough or they need to work harder or they need to straighten up their attitude or any of those things. Cause like myself, I'm a firefighter. So we see some of these newer recruits in the fire academy and all that stuff. And every older generation is always gonna say, My time was harder than than what yours is right. now. But it definitely seems like uh there's shock on people's faces when we tell them you did that like shit. You know, this, this evolution that you did was terrible and you need to do it all over again. It's like, you're hurting their feelings, but that's kind of, it's almost like this, this is the first time they're being told this. Right. Well, you, you just hit the nail on the head. That's, that's the generation now. And listen, I hear what you're saying about everybody thinks their generation had it the hardest, you know, yeah. It, we, we my grandfather walked two miles of school uphill both ways in the snow. Of course, you know, and, and, and to be blunt, the, the older seals, you know, I was in, in my buds class, I'll, I'll go to the reunions now and the old seals will be like, Oh, you guys had it uh, easy. You know, you're all a bunch yeah. of, you know, a bunch of sissy uh-huh. boys and you know, we, had a, <laughs> we had a heart in you guys. You guys couldn't have made it through our training. 
you know, meanwhile, they've never fought terrorists or, you know, done close quarters battle or the kind of stuff we do. So there's a there's a whole new type of tough or a whole new type of rigor when uh, as, as you as you evolve. Mm -hmm. But what, what you're talking about is exactly uh, like I said, hitting the nail on the head. Um, I've in the past 11 years, um, I've run a very successful practice and I can tell you that anybody I've ever hired and, and, and I'm not being mean here under the age of 25, you have to handle with kids gloves. Um, mm. um, I've got, I've got, uh, I've had, uh, people I've had to tell how to say you're welcome, how to say thank you because little things like, uh, you um, a patient will tell one of my, um, people, thank you. And they'll go like, no problem. And I'll pull them aside. I'm like, hell, I know it's no problem. Uh, they're here paying us to make them feel better. They know it's not a problem. Say you're right. welcome. And then they look at you like you just, you know, urinated on their shoe or something like, oh my God. Um, and at, at the same time, you, um, you, you train them to like have a dialogue with someone uh, when you bring them in the room, even if it's just getting their subjective. And a lot of times they'll come back just traumatized because somebody was upset or somebody didn't talk to them the way they wanted to be talked to. And that's the same thing I was talking about earlier about preparing the road for your child, not your child for the road. Mm -hmm. And I really look at these little precious bodies that mama and daddy didn't raise and go, Oh my God, what, what's going to happen to you at the first sign of real adversity. And can I tell you something blunt? The people that we're describing right now are the same people wearing black masks that are out there protesting, thinking that they've got it so hard and they're yeah. standing up for everybody else when they are the problem. You mm -hmm. know? So, anyway. Yeah, I, I totally understand your point. And that kind of brings me to one of the things I wanted to ask you, which was, do you feel like to raise, to raise strong children, to raise people that will be successful one day and not have, uh, it seems to be like this ever softening problem that we have going on right now. Do you feel like putting them into public service in some fashion? It doesn't necessarily have to be, uh, in the military or, or through a church necessarily, but maybe if it's just working with an organization that serves people from like a young age, do you feel like that's necessary? I, I don't only think that's necessary. I, I think that is like the best thing we could possibly do, Ryan. Um, yeah. I spent a lot of time um, in, in a lot of different countries training with other special forces people. One of the things I noticed the most is um, countries like Norway and Sweden, which all the socialists like to point at and say, hey, this is our, mm -hmm. this is what we need to do. They have this thing called conscription service for their young people. When you come out of high school, it doesn't matter if you're going to college. If you're going to college, you go into the military for a year. Then you become part of their, you know, national defense force, even after you're gone. Um, if you're not going to college, you go in for two years um, and then you become part of their national defense force. Well, guess what that does? It does two things. First of all, it gives you a strong sense of pride and um, commitment and discipline for your country. And the other thing it is, other, other thing is it, it keeps you off the street and keeps you out of gangs and out of drugs right out of high school. Absolutely. So these countries are, are, are really successful in that. And guess what? Last time I checked, neither one of those countries have anybody turning away from their national flag or anthem anytime it's being played because they love their country and, you know, they um, had to go and serve and, and, uh, and show that service. So mm -hmm. I think if we had something like conscription here, that'd be good. But um, getting back to your point, we, we'll never do that. 
but if we had something like that. But the other thing is um, helping someone else um, besides just being totally self-serving is huge. I mean, that's that's the big thing. Um, I'm just as proud of being a member, um, a Jeremiah Bill Milbanks member of the Boys and Clubs, Boys and Girls Clubs of America, as I am being a SEAL Team Six sniper. And that would surprise most people. But you know what? After my childhood and um, helping an organization that helps young people, I think that I did as much or more good helping the Boys and Girls Clubs of America than I ever did shooting bad guys. Yeah. Um, just because that's that's where we got to start, guys. We got to start here at home with our young people and get them involved in the Boys and Girls Club, YMCA. Um, um, here's a good one for you. You ever want to uh, open a young person's eyes? Take them to a, um, a, um, a, a retirement home or something like that and let them see some people who don't have anybody in this world. I've mm-hmm. done that. And, I, and that's a really effective thing to do. Take them there and let them see um, older people who whose life is over and they're in a bad way and who are just happy to see somebody. Why aren't we doing that in our high schools or in our colleges instead of teaching critical race theory or how to hate your country? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's, uh, you know, and back to your, your previous point, it's almost like we have a certain level of freedom in America where you're not being told to do conscription or, or go into two years of mandatory, you know, military service. But the, the outcome of that is a lot of our youth, I think just gets left behind because they don't have any mentors. They don't have anybody that they're looking up to um, during those time periods in their lives where they're so formidable. I mean, there, there's little, there's moments I feel like in a, in a kid's life, when their only their mentor is either going to be the gang member on the street that has everything and, t- and is that father figure for them, or it's going to be someone who's actually going to lead them down a positive path. See, but Ryan, I, that's fantastic. Yeah. I've, I've never thought that deep into it, but that's exactly it. It's what uh, mentor, role model, or whatever mm-hmm. um, leader you're following, whether that's a crip or a blood, or you know somebody at your local uh, boys and club. So boys yeah. and girls club. So you're absolutely right, and. I don't know that does that really just it just basically comes down to the garbage in garbage out thing. You know, you can lead somebody good or good or bad. You know, you can um, teach them good or bad. But, yeah, I, uh, I, I totally agree with that. Yeah. And I don't I don't know um, what the answer would be, because all of our higher learning right now. And listen, I went back, got, got my doctorate when I was in my early 40s. And I can tell you, I had to bite my tongue so many times at a liberal school. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, getting my doctorate that I'm sitting here listening to these professors talk to these young kids and, you know, they can push that bullshit off on these guys cause they're 21, 22 years old. Right. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 41 still team six sniper, been around the world. <laughs> twice. Yeah. Talk, talk to everybody once, you know, you're, you know, whenever I'm not going to teach you about the world. <laughs> oh my God. And, and, and I knew who the liberal inf- instructors were and they knew me. And the minute they saw my hand go up, you could see them. Oh my They're God. Like, they, they, here he comes. Like, Give me a shot of tequila or a martini or something. Guys and I took great pleasure in, in doing that uh, because they need the, the young people. I owed it to them guys. It was a whole different type of combat. I couldn't sit there in that classroom and listen to this BS that was being spewed that had nothing to do with organic chemistry, by the way, but had everything to do with indoctrination. I, I couldn't sit there and take it, guys. I, I had to stand up yeah. and I did on m- many occasions stand up and, um, you know, 
challenge them. But uh, I, I don't know how many people, how many people going through uh, our, our college systems today have the audacity to stand up and, and do something yeah. like that. Because listen, if you're a young pe- person today and you stand up and challenge the uh, professor or you stand up and challenge, I don't know, whoever is in your classroom you're, w- with social media and, you know, everything that's going on, on the campuses, you, you're, you're in real danger, you know, cause they're not going to come after somebody like me, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm uh, you know, I'm, I'm prepared for that kind of thing, but these young people today aren't, and they're being totally indoctrinated by the absolute wrong type of people. Is, uh, is there something that you, you, this is switching gears a little bit, but in, with raising sure. your kids, you said they're, they're adults now. Um, oh yeah. All, there, my, all my children are grown. Is there something you would have done differently? In, yep, in hindsight, I'm gonna, now I'm going to surprise both of you and everybody that watches this. Um, I did not raise perfect children. It's <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, unbelievable. Right. I'm very disappointed. Uh, was then. <laughs> yeah, I rose. I, I did raise uh, children who are able to hold their own in today's society, though. Um, yes, I, I'm very proud of my children. Um, you now, one's a school teacher. One's a nutritionist that uh, that runs my clinic. Um, one's still in school. Um, I think the one thing that I, you know, pushed on them, Adam, and the one thing that I ingrained in them was that um, you, you accomplish, you mission accomplishment. Doesn't matter what you hit, what hiccups you hit, and uh, or whatever, what uh, road bumps you hit, you you keep persevering, you keep going. You know, stuff's going to happen, um, and, and you keep going. Um, different. The one thing that I did, and you guys alluded to it earlier about breaking the chain or breaking the cycle, um, I introduced affection into uh, into my, my children's lives, which is something I never had and something I highly recommend for all parents. So you guys make sure you don't delete that part. Yeah. Um, <laughs> affection, yeah. Um, a, a, affection was a big part of it. And uh, that's something that um, even my patients um, notice. And by the way, I, I, I see a lot of people a week, even when I'm not speaking, during the virus and everything, I still see over 200 patients a week. And I've had a lot of patients mention the fact that, oh my gosh, you know, um, nobody thinks that a SEAL Team 6 sniper is this affectionate guy, but they see the way I am with my children. They see the way I am with them. And uh, what they don't realize is you you become an an elite member of an organization like that because you love your fellow man. People don't realize that. They think you just want to be some badass at shooting people from a mile away. Absolutely not. You know, um, it's uh, it's love of country. It's love of people. Um, so that's the one thing I did with my with my children. Uh, back to your question, Adam, is um, different. I don't know it, if anything with my children. I went too far the opposite direction than the way I was raised. You know, maybe I wasn't firm enough with them, to be honest. Maybe I should have been a little more firm, but they're all good human beings now they're all successful yeah. they all have uh good uh good jobs uh, you know and, and and get on well in life um but but i i guess if if i had to do one thing different and this is something i couldn't couldn't have helped would be around more um mm-hmm. my wife talked with me this morning and we agreed that the one thing i needed to tell you guys is i do not recommend going into any of the seal teams as a married man or <laughs> yeah. as raising raising a family, um, being in the teams is not conducive to raising a family, to raising children. Um, 
So back to your question, Adam. Yeah, the one thing I could have done different, should have done different, would do different, and would be being around them more when they were younger, when I was in the SEAL team. And but by doing that, I would still I would have changed who I am and um, the influence Mm -hmm. I I I had on them. But I want to stick to this for one second, if you guys will indulge me. Um, When I got to Buds, I remember walking out onto the um, onto the grinder. They call it. There's this big uh, pad out there called the grinder. And um, like I said, all 141, 43, I can't remember of us were standing there and um, they said, you're about to attempt to be a member of the most elite fighting force in the world. We will give you everything you need to survive. We'll give you everything you need to be the best of the best. Um, Who here is married? And, you know, a couple of us raised our hands or whatever. And they said, hey, you dumb bastards, didn't we just tell you we would give you everything you need? We didn't give any of you a wife. So that's extra extra gear. We highly recommend that you go home and get rid of that extra gear that you don't need and then come back. And we're we're all laughing about it now, but looking back, they were exactly right. Right. I mean, I mean, you know, we're we're laughing about it, but I'm I'm looking back, going, "Damn, I would have done her a favor." And I went home and said, "Hey, sweetheart, before we have uh, any more children besides the one we have, everything I'm about to embark on a journey that's not conducive to family life, married life. So, uh, do yourself a favor and go find somebody else." Yeah. Yeah. Well, see, it, Ryan, if you ever want out of your marriage, you just have yeah. to join. <laughs> I just have to be go to Adam, try to get the buds. You don't even have to want out of it, brother. The the divorce rate is ninety six percent. Yeah, you know, so really, wow, ninety six percent. Look at look it up. Yeah, it's not, and that, and you know, that's uh, I don't know how many years they went back and looked at that at, but um, yeah. I can tell you what, out of out of all my years in the teams, I can think of, and this is the truth, I can think of exactly one marriage that I thought was like really, really exceptional. And the guy was able to pull it off with balancing out teams and marriage and, and being a father. And, um, you know, I, I can tell you that's exactly one, one person. And, um, he was a very religious guy. He, um, managed to rotate between shore and sea duty. I don't know if you guys know what that means, but when you're on shore duty, you're actually home for a while and sea duty, you're, uh, you're deployable, deployable, deployable. Yeah. And, um, yeah, deplorable. deplorable. Yeah. Well, that's how you thought about it back then. You know, yeah. we all, we all wanted to be door kickers, you know, we wanted to be deployable, but um, yeah, so it, it, it's a real number. So the, and that's not just in the seals. Delta force guys don't want me talking about them. Although they're my brothers, um, their numbers are about the same. So, you know, it's not uh, to be a, be a good family man, to go be a firefighter, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we just did a episode. It, it came out today, actually, on work-life balance mm-hmm. and, and how that's, those are decisions we have to make every, every day, you know. On, you better believe on it, brother. Supporting our family financially versus physically and, and that, that fine line. See, and here's the thing, too, Adam. I, I mean, given my background, I had nothing to counterbalance it with. You know, I didn't have a good family life growing up, you know. So, hell, I get into the most elite special forces in the world. I'm all in on saving the world, not balancing out my family because I never had any, you know, example of how, exactly how that was supposed to work. 
You know, something's yeah. going wrong at home. Okay, I'll come home, beat his ass, and go back and shoot mm. a terrorist. You know, but yeah, you know, that, <laughs> yeah. Would, that would have been my counterbalance. Yeah, the I got lucky because my mom uh, got remarried when I was five uh, to a guy in the Air Force, and uh, so he he brought that into my life. And then when he got out of the Air Force, he worked sixty hours a week to put her through college, and so like I watched, I watched hard work change a life like we grew up in a two-bedroom apartment with the five of us eating 40 cent cheeseburgers for dinner five nights a week and so i got mm -hmm. to see what hard work could do and uh it's you know it's it's appreciating that you know makes me appreciate hard work now you know what the funny thing is you hear those stories hear the story you just told me and i gotta say you're lucky you know yeah. so yeah think about it so you had the hardship but Good God, man! You know you were lucky. God bless 100%. you, man. That um, that uh, that raised you doing that. One hundred percent. Yeah, and that's uh, that's the that's the guy called that's the dad to me. You know what I mean? That's that was dad, not uh, not the guy who left us to go to the bar. I hear you. Hey, yeah, I like this guy already. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when um, when you uh, when you reflect back on on all the things that you've accomplished in life, is there one specific moment or accomplishment that stands out to you? Uh, outside of, I'm sure, raising your kids and raising good children. Okay, yeah, I was going to say that, let's, that let's defines you. Let's qualify, qualify not uh, family and events and mm -hmm. graduations and all that. A absolutely, Ryan. If you guys not remember the podcast, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, there was this. Um, it's in the book. I don't know if you guys saw it. There's um, this little boy next to the safe house in Mogadishu that has stepped on a landmine and got his leg blown off. Okay. And I'm, I'm out there one night and you guys know what a safe house is. We're basically working with the CIA, running these agents in and out of the bad part of town, collecting intelligence, um, finding out where the good guys were, you know, where they weren't, um, checkpoints, all this kind of good stuff. Um, doing, you don't use the term assassination, doing, um, you know, doing um, the, these things that um, are going to make things easier for our soldiers. So anyway, I'm out there one night and I smell this horrible smell. And I um, can't see anything, uh, put my night vision on, can't see anything from the roof. The next day, um, there's no smell. The next night, the smell's back. Well, this little boy had stepped on a landmine, and they were putting him out on the front porch at night, out of the house so everybody else could sleep because his leg had become necrotic, which is fancy Jesus. daughter talk for rotting. Yeah. Um, and wow. he was stinking everybody in the house. So in the daytime, they put him in the house when everybody was out. And then at nighttime, they put him on the front porch while everybody was in the house sleeping. And um, so anyway, I found out uh, about this little boy next door and um, what had gone on with him stepping on the landmine and all this. And there was four of us uh, SEAL team members running that safe house. And um, I um, found out about him and I told them, hey, guys, we got to go next door and um, help this little kid. And um, I'll send you guys a picture of him um, if, if you'd like after uh, yeah, we got him bandaged up. But anyway, um, so the other three guys are like, well, you know, we're uh, running a safe house is a, is a tricky thing. Uh, I don't know if you guys know anything about it, but you basically got to be really, nobody knows you're there. The indigenous people don't know you're there. Um, you got all these bona fides and signs that you set up shooting people who are coming close to there that aren't supposed to be there. So it's a big deal, um, especially on this operation. And um, so anyway, they tell me, hey, if you can get uh, clearance 
from the head general, who at that point was General Garrison, to go next door, we'll do it. And so anyway, I, I fought with that for about two days because I knew what the answer would be. Um, it was going to be not only no, but hell no. Right. Um, so I asked him about going next door and rendering aid. And um, the call came back on the radio, compromise authority denied, which means you're not to do anything. Well, I waited for about two more nights. And then I heard the little boy next door um, doing his death rattle, which I don't, uh, I can't even like give you an example of, but I, I knew the kid it's was a, dying. Yeah. It's, it's a terrible thing. I mean, it'll, it'll haunt you the rest of your life. So anyway, I pulled my uh, shooting partner aside, Homer, and I said, look, I'm going over and I'm helping this kid. I want you to come with me. Um, one of the other guys who was the, the ranking guy had already said no. Um, he's, He's now a career politician, by the way. Um, <laughs> <he's>, <laughs> I wonder you, if it's the person I'm thinking just to of. Show, just to show <laughs> you that it's all in the blood. But yeah. anyway, <laughs> and then uh, the other guy was kind of like, well, I don't know, whatever. And um, anyway, the, the, the point you guys are making or asking me about when I've just finally said, hey, this is a game changer for me was, well, you know what? Screw it. As a SEAL Team 6 sniper, if going over saving that life by God isn't important enough, then I'm going to go do it, and one or two things can happen. I can get shot, or you guys can court-martial me when I get back. So anyway, long story short, we went over, um, did a dynamic entry on the house, um, say, uh, bandaged up the kid's leg uh, for a couple of nights in, the row, in, in a row, and um, guess what? That good deed did not go punished because after that, the word got around that, hey, these are the good guys. And we really did win the hearts and minds. Yeah. And I've got a picture that still gives me chills when I look at it. Uh, me and this little boy, I'm bent over him. His legs pretty much healed up. His leg was blown off, by the way, by the landmine. He had scurvy, which is a, um, a disease the old sailors used to get from a vitamin C deficiency. And I've got a picture of me with a bag of oranges next to him. And me bent over him, showing his little bandaged up leg, and he's smiling for the first time that I'd ever seen him smile in months. And I look back on Somalia, I look up back on all my SEAL Team 6 exploits, and by God, if there's one thing that I can point at and say, hey, you know, I know I made a difference at least at this one point right here. Um, aside from yeah. shooting a, a bad guy that was about to shoot down a Black Hawk helicopter, this this was yeah. it. <laughs> you know, but um, that was that was really a turning point for me, too, because um, I realized that even then there's politics evolved in the military. And you guys mm -hmm. think me naive. But up until that point, I just thought, hey, we're the good guys. We're here. We're here to help everybody. Sure. Not, you know, all, all the good guys. But then I saw the politics and then I then I realized, hey, you know, there's people here that only care about the next promotion. There's people mm -hmm. here that only care about which party you vote for. And, you know, up until that point, I was blissfully ignorant of that. But um, yeah, it, that's, that's uh man, what a, what a moment uh, saving that, that kid's life. And it's, it's one of those things where I wonder if you felt like you need to stand up for the little guy, because, you know, maybe you saw maybe a little bit of that example in yourself. I don't know, because it seems like Brian, you you're, almost you're, reached you're out still, to, you're still my talking points, man. Yeah. <laughs> I look. I feel like, you I know, because someone who's helpless, like you were helpless. I at looked. One point. I looked all three of those guys in the eye that night before yeah. we did the direct action. Before we took down, I had to do a basic takedown of that house, and I said, "Listen, guys, I've been in a position before, in that wet ass hour, mm -hmm. and the dog shit skinny is this. 
There's nobody coming to help me. I'm hurting. I'm in a bad situation. No one's coming to hurt me or to help me. And there's no one that I can ask for help. We're in a position to help this kid. And by God, I'm going to help him without you or with you because I've been in that situation and I know what helpless feels like. And if you guys aren't going to come help me um, fix this kid, F all of you. And that's when they fell in behind me and we went over and did the all. But yeah, that's exactly it. I, I, I felt him. I mean, not having my leg blown off, which is funny because later on I did have my leg blown yeah. off. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but um, I know You're what like, it's like to be helpless. Where is the karma on this? <laughs> yeah. <I know. laughs> but, um, but uh, yeah, to, to be in a helpless situation, uh, truly helpless, not like, oh my God, somebody says something that triggered me. I need a safe space and a puppy. Yeah. But to be in a, in, a, in a truly helpless situation, that's a, that's a bad place to be in. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you had a puppy, I'm sure he would have liked that also, though. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'd recommend a puppy, you know. Just, <laughs> just, just not the mentality goes along with needing one to survive. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is a little bit of a generic question, but you're such a good storyteller. Do, do you, besides what you just told, do you have a favorite story to tell? Well, that is that is definitely uh, my favorite story to tell because that's everything: love, overcoming adversity, etc. Yeah. Um, do you have any idea what happened? What happened to him? Yes, I do. Uh, thanks for asking. Um, after I was shot, I was laying on the, uh, the 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 tarmac at the runway. I don't know if you guys know about the triage center that was set up in Mogadishu, Somalia. After all, 156 of us or 57 of us got shot, and 100. Um, um, needed medical attention. Um, they they set up a mass casualty station there on the tarmac, and I was laying there. And this adds insult to injury, guys. You're laying there. I've been shot three times. You know what? The first thing they do when you're laid out and they're going to address your injuries. You guys know it all. I mean, you're firemen. Yeah, I mean, well, they basically triage you into different categories. But if you could walk, yeah. come over here and and come to this area. Okay, so or... if you're laying on your back, what do they do? Yeah. I'll take you straight. Uh, they cut all your clothes off. Oh so yeah. I'm sitting yeah. there. Yeah. So I'm sitting there laying there naked, um, holding oh, nothing but my okay. clivet knife. And um, you know, they're they're coming over looking at you. Um, of course they, they put a blanket over you eventually, but so I had insult to injury, you're laying there, shot three times, and um um you got no clothes on and uh, you're just feeling totally helpless. Um so anyway, that's um that's like the the worst thing ever. And then um, I've got this knife in my hand and it's got my initials on it. And that's the only thing I got. They've taken my gun. They've taken my clothes. So I'm keeping this, you know, if they storm yeah. the gates, at least I'm going to cut somebody before they kill me. Yeah. <laughs> so the, um, the uh, corpsman comes over and um, takes my knife, gives me a shot. And I guess I pass out or whatever. I wake up later on the airplane being flown to uh, Germany and um, never see my knife again. Well, my book comes out in 2011 and then about 2015, I get this letter and it's from this guy and it's got my knife inside of it. And it says, um, Dr. Wozden, you know, um, I was on the airfield whenever, whatever. And, um, I wasn't able to get your knife to you before they took it, but it has served me well in Iraq. And my wife is deployed to Afghanistan right now. And it's been her good luck charm. So now we're returning wow. this to you and wow. thank you for your, uh, thank you for this knife. So I guess that would be my, um, my, my other good story, but yeah. I, I've still got that knife. 
And then when my buddy was going to um, um, going for uh, therapy for his uh, cancer, he had prostate cancer, chemotherapy. That's it. He, uh, he kept that knife with him and it got him through chemotherapy. So wow, that's a, it's like the magic knife or whatever. So that's, I guess yeah. that's why it's a good story. That, that's great. Were, were you going to say what, what happened with the, the kid? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. The kid. So I was laying on the runway. I'm sorry. I got, got, uh, no, no, that was great. And then, um, the guys, uh, Mike Shanklin's his name. He's a, he's a CIA legend and I can use his name now because he wrote a book. He is Condor <laughs> in, in my book, Condor who ran the safe house. That was Mike Shanklin. Um, he comes up to me and says, Hey, is there anything I can do for you? I said, yes, the kid next door at Pasha, um, make sure he gets a wheelchair. So then he says, I'll take care of it. I transition back to the States. I'm going through rehab up at Walter Reed and then down at, um, at Fort Stewart. And I get this picture and he's got, he's standing behind the kid, the kid's in a wheelchair looking up at me with his big smile. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, wow. sorry, sorry, I got uh, off on a no, different tangent that, there. That, I like, I like the uh, magic knife story too. Yeah, you know, but anyway, so yeah, so that all happened while I was laying there helpless. But yeah, he asked me about the kid, and I said, yeah, do that, and, and he sent me that. But after that, I don't know. Um, I do know that uh, Ilhan Omar is from Mogadishu, Somalia, and I'll forward you the letter that I sent her after mm-hmm. all her stuff because I very nicely um, threw the BS flag on her and said, hey, look. I know you know this part of town. You probably know, you know, this family. You know what it's like there. So all this crap that you're pulling right now, you know, is wrong. And um, so anyway, I kind of related that to her. Sure. It's, it's funny. None of her or her staff never got back to me. Yeah, I wonder why it yeah. didn't fit the narrative, probably. So I yeah. wonder why. Um, well, I don't want to take up too much of your time, Howard. So um, I want to ask you one uh one question before we move on to kind of like the way we want to wrap it up with you, but a quick, a quick side note, how do you feel about, since you are an author and you've written books about your experiences and in, in, in the teams and you've kind of told your story, how do you feel about how common that has become? Uh, seal books are just so common. Well, now. I, I think it's, um, I think everything is time sensitive, Ryan. Um, you know, I waited 20 years to write my book, make sure everything was declassified I think everything now with social media, um, you know, Facebook, uh, 24 hour a day news. I think everything is so much real time now mm-hmm. that is to our detriment. I think um, me being shot in 1993 and then writing a book in 2011, I, I think that was the perfect time frame to like have a little bit of distance from it. Think about sure. it. Know what you can and can't put in a book. Um, I don't. I, I don't think that only generals and secretaries of defense and presidents should be able to write books. Um, if you're a enlisted man and you've done something of note, noteworthy or you've done something to change the course of history, really, mm-hmm. um, you should be able to do that. You know, like uh, the guy who shot Bin Laden, if he wants to do that, that's fine. I think that that's something that could have waited a few years, but um, it's not the world we live in now. Um, I think it's too commonplace now to everybody to go out and do something and say, Hey, look at me now. I yeah. mean, I mean, taking away from the military, look at Dr. Fauci. He screwed up every single thing he's done since he's started helping us through this pandemic. And he's got an 80 page book coming out. I, I, gosh, yeah. you know? 
I could I write an 80, 80 page book about my first op that would be way more entertaining than that. But you know, he's, <laughs> he's, he's going to do that and be totally self-serving, pat himself on the back. And everybody out there is going to be like, yay, that's our guy. By the way, let's go buy another face mask. But um, yeah. um, I don't know. I don't know if I answered your question directly there, Ryan. It's a it's a fine line. Um, sure. There's a techniques, tactics and procedures, TTPs that should never be put out. I didn't put mm-hmm. any out in my book. Um, I know some people have put those out in their books and gotten in trouble for it. Um, basically, um, I don't think you should be writing about anything that's going to put anybody in danger, um, mm-hmm. which is why I'm really proud of my book, because my book's a, a human interest story. You guys know that. It's sure. not like, hey, look at me. Uh, this is a number of people that I killed. I'm the seal sniper that killed this many people. And you put a number to it to me mm-hmm. in and of itself. That's that's not cool. That's, and I definitely don't think that's Christian. Um, mm-hmm. Why are you putting a number to it? And why are you sharing that number? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. to be honest. So yeah, I, I don't agree with that aspect. If you can write a book and something's somebody's going to read it and get something from it and help them, then by all means do it. And let me tell you something after my youth adaptive version came out of my book, I've gotten thousands and I can show you, I got, I got thousands of letters from young people who have said, Hey, I was in a position where I didn't know if I was going to make it or not, but after reading your book, I know I'm going to be okay. And Mm -hmm. I've gotten a bunch of letters from old timers, Vietnam and Korean vets that said, Hey, you came back and you talked about needing help. I've needed help all these years. I've climbed into a bottle for my help. But now that I know a SEAL Team 6 sniper badass can say, hey, I'm, I need help, I'm going to go get help too. And, yeah. you know, wow. to me, that's that's the qualifying factor of, of writing a book, I guess. What what are you doing it for? Are, are you going to help somebody? Are you mm-hmm. going to, are you going to like try to better who comes after you? Are, are, are you relating a story that people can like look at and say, hey, you know, this is motivational. It's going to help me. Or are you just like, hey, look at me. I'm a badass. I shot this many people. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us. We like, we see, I seriously appreciate it. This was, I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, you um, guys are ever do down have- in, um, you guys ever down in uh, Fernandina, Florida, stop by. I'll, um, I'll let you buy me a beer and we'll, we'll talk. Yeah, I was going to say, absolutely. <laughs> we, we owe you a beer for coming on. Definitely. <laughs> 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 buy a beer, get a little adjustment. Yeah. There you uh, go. <laughs> Two uh two really quick questions. Number one, uh, do you have a favorite dad joke? Dad joke. Yeah, but this is this is probably not one that you could like put on your podcast. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you guys gotta understand I, the group of guys that I ran with and joke with are are not your are not your guys that you would like uh, just want to I, I own uh I own comedy clubs, so that's that's my <laughs> Adam's business. heard them so all. We're fine. Okay. And Ryan sees Ryan sees it every day. Uh, so. well, I'm going to yeah. give you the joke. You guys use it or not. Okay. okay, okay. So little, <laughs> little Johnny comes home from school one day. Okay. And um, he comes in, he puts his books down and uh, hears some noise coming from upstairs. He goes upstairs and he notices mom's bedroom door is ajar. And he looks in and Uncle John is on top of mom making these funny up and down movements. So little Johnny looks in the door and walks back downstairs and, um, um, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, dad was on top of the maid making the funny up and down movements. And uh, so anyway, he goes back downstairs. Mom comes home later and says, little Johnny, what'd you do? He said, well, I came home today, walked upstairs. Dad was on top of the maid 
And he was, and she's like, oh, don't tell me, little Johnny. Just wait. <laughs> so they get to the dinner table. And I hadn't told his joke in a long time. They get to the dinner table, and they're sitting around the dinner table. And uh, Mom says, okay, little Johnny, now tell everybody what you saw when you came home today. He said, well, I came home, put my books down, walked upstairs, and I looked in the door, and I saw Dad on top of the maid. And he was doing to the maid what Uncle Tom does to you when Dad goes fishing. <laughs> I wish I had a better dad joke guys, that's I like it that's, like that's, uh, that's, the, that's the other thing if I ever wanted to write another book honest to God uh, honest to God I could write a book of just silly stupid funny stuff yeah. that, that happened in the teams because when we weren't shooting people we spent all of our time laughing i don't know if it was a coping mechanism for or what, sure but yeah we had some real comedians that i had me talking about owning comedy club or writing for comedy clubs i mean this is all the material you would ever need yeah oh, I, bet. I, would, I would i'm sure i would love to hear those stories <laughs> you should you should write it yeah we'll see we'll see but yeah anyway. uh and then our, our last question, we let all of our guests name their episode of the podcast. So what, what would you like today's episode to be named? The good, the bad, and the ugly. Perfect. All right. Perfect. Because I, I, I think I'm pretty much giving you guys all three, right? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. And I mean what I say, guys. You, you guys ever down this way, stop by and see me. Yeah, thank you, Howard. Um, you know, I after reading about you, you know, however, I probably five, six years ago is when I first read your book and getting to speak to you now is, is a huge honor for me. So I really do appreciate you. I think your story is awesome. And I, everything you've said, I think, is a lesson that we can all take. So I really appreciate talking to you today. Thanks, guys. My pleasure. Yeah. Thanks, Howard. Howard Wasden is the man. He's the man. I love him. That was so great. Uh, if you enjoyed that, go on Amazon, get his book, check it out. If you have not already, like our podcast, subscribe, go leave a comment. We could use that. Leave leave a review. Definitely leave, leave a, review a review for us. Um, it doesn't have to be anything big. Just let people know we changed your life and saved you. Yeah, exactly. Whatever. Let them know that you couldn't live without our <laughs> podcast, that without raising dads you wouldn't know how to continue on in life and <laughs> we are the reason that you have had any level of success in your life listen if you want to message us on instagram and let us know that you didn't have a father figure growing up and we are your father figure that's cool man well i'll send yeah. you 20 bucks i'll send you 20 bucks on your birthday <laughs> yeah. yeah the raising dad's uh name actually comes into play there we are everyone's dad <laughs> uh i also want to give a big uh shout out we had a pretty cool week on tiktok yeah we did have a great week on tiktok we posted a video of our episode from ben vernon we told some people in our episode about um the incident but we didn't we weren't able to actually you know walk our way through the video during the audio version of the podcast so we tried to direct people to our instagram which is raising dad's pod and then our tiktok now which is more up and running it's called raising dad's podcasts on tiktok yeah, because and you can't follow directions and we have different names on both oh, but you know what it's nice we're unique <laughs> anyways <laughs> we got 3.5 million views on that video as of right now as of right now uh we have almost half a million likes and uh people have sent us some really cool messages so i just want to say hello to all the tiktokers out there and thank you for your support 
yeah, thank you for your support. And as always on our Instagram, especially um, if you or anybody you know is someone you think that would be interesting to talk to us about uh, or talk or that we should talk about, I should say, uh, please give us a direct message. Let us know about them. And we are open and willing to look at anybody if you guys have an idea. See you next week. See ya. Mom's mad. So for daddy. What the heck? Thanks for listening. Thank you, bye. Subscribe and download. Subscribe and download. Thank you, people. Where you